here, verses 1 through 4, through chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, we're looking at verses 1 through 14. This involves Jesus's, one of the more clear passages in Jesus's teaching on the Sabbath. There are many in the New Testament that we could turn to and look uh, consider and study this morning. We will look at a few additional passages, but uh, this will be our primary section. And in, in high school, I think, and, and early college years, I learned to kind of do the bare minimum um, to get the, the grade I was seeking, which was, which was usually an A, at least out of high school. High school is more just a passing grade, but I oftentimes just, I saw, okay, in order to get the A, I need to do these things, and, and that'll get me at 90%. If I, if I get at 93 or 94, that, well, that's like 4% I wasted, right? 4% of effort that was just wasted. I, and so I, I, I could get that same grade and, and not put as much effort into it, right? And, and I like to think I was being efficient, but in all likelihood, it was just laziness, Right? Um, the Sabbath was not instituted so that men would have an excuse to be lazy. Uh, as much as that sounds like a great way to spend the Lord's day, I know I've been guilty of that, we should recognize the intricate connection between work and rest. The Sabbath instruction was always, uh, was always a balance with work on the other six days. In fact, in order to properly fight laziness, we need a better understanding of Sabbath rest. It's important to recognize the value of work that is explicitly mentioned in the fourth commandment. When we read, when we read Exodus chapter 20, verse 9, we read, Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Although this emphasis of the, of the command, or, or the, the primary emphasis of the command is the rest that you do on the seventh day, this verse shouldn't be so quickly glossed over. Work was a creation mandate. Adam and Eve had duties to perform those six days. And so it's an active six days of work that, in fact, makes the rest and worship of the seventh day that much more rewarding. And we said, even on the seventh day, it's, it's what you're resting from. It's not inactivity. It's a resting from the, the things that you devote yourself to the other six days, whatever that might be. And so, in fact, the seventh, you know, the day of rest, the, the Lord's day, which is now the eighth day, the day of Christ's resurrection, um, we it may in fact be filled with such activity and such service for God and draining, in fact, even draining worship of God. Certainly those who, who teach regularly on the Lord's Day, uh, fellow pastors of mine, reflect upon this often, that, that Sunday is the most draining day of the week. Many of them take Monday off because of that, even though it's not the most convenient day to take off. No one else is taking that day off, but because they're useless on Monday haven't been so drained. Well, we're going to understand why that's not breaking the Sabbath. Uh, we're going to look at that, why, why that is um, in our passage this morning. So although this emphasis is on the rest, the, we, we should recognize that it's the, the six days of work that make that rest and that worship that much more rewarding. 
that much more something we look forward to and will not properly value rest if we have not properly of our weekly responsibilities combined to provide purpose and fulfillment to the believer. Paul Maxwell says, under the tyranny of today, laziness is simply the most meaningful reality we can conceive. Under the loving hand of God's Sabbath rest, though, the unrelenting tyrant of laziness loses its power day by day, Sabbath by Sabbath, inch by inch. Then life and work will be filled with more meaning, relief, and fruitfulness. As we begin to really do our work to the fullest and then rest to the fullest, we're filled with fulfillment. We're filled with satisfaction and joy and meaning and fruitfulness in our lives. So this is the, the third of four sermons on the four, fourth commandment. We'll be, we began by recognizing the origin of the Sabbath observance that took us back to the creation account in Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3. And then we considered the following week the observance of the Sabbath in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. And we said that there's two positive components and there's also two negative components to the Sabbath command. One is to remember the Sabbath day, which implies a prior knowledge and not forgetting and an observing and a celebrating of the day, as well as to keep it holy, right? It's, it's set apart. It's not common. It's to be treated much different than the other six days. And so remembering the Sabbath day and keeping it holy, that's the positive side of the command. And then negatively, you're not to do any work and you're not to employ others, to do work for you. So we are to observe the Sabbath deliverance of his people, and that's what you find in the commandment right before the fourth commandment, right? It's, it's given to us because of Christ's deliverance. And if you look at the passage in Deuteronomy 5, it emphasizes something different than the passage in Exodus 20. And so you have the command given in Exodus 20 as a response to God's creation, rest, as a model for us. And, and so we observe it because of his cre- the, the rest we have at, at cre- or the rest he modeled at creation. But then in Deuteronomy, it emphasizes the reason why we observe it is because he has delivered us out of bondage. So for the Israelites, the original hearers of this command, in its, in its full sense here from Exodus, um, when Moses gives it again in Deuteronomy to them, he emphasizes the fact that God rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. So for the believer, there's a similar concept there that because of his deliverance of us out of sin, we also devote our time to him. Right? We rest in his work on our behalf. And we'll, we'll clarify more of what that means as well. But finally, uh, 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 we, we talked about the purpose of the Sabbath when we looked at Isaiah chapter 58, verses 13 through 14 the purpose of the Sabbath, which was to delight in a day of rest and worship. We so oftentimes think about what we can't do. It's the drudgery of the day. It's, the, it's just, you know, you're looking at the clock waiting for Monday to come around. You're anxious to get back out there and, and do all of the activities you get, you get to do the rest of the week, but that's the wrong way to look at it, right? It's, it's a day of joy. It's a day of rest and gladness. We come together on this market day of the soul, as the Puritans called it. It's a day where we can't get enough of God. We keep filling our shopping cart with more blessings from the Lord that we're meditating upon and reflecting upon the fellowship we enjoy with Christ 
and with his saints. So this morning, I want to turn to the New Testament, spend most of our time looking at the teaching of Jesus regarding Sabbath observance. How did Jesus remember the Sabbath and keep it holy? He was perfect in doing so. But how did that look? It was, it was in a way that drew condemnation from the Pharisees. And so some have argued that Jesus' teaching actually loosened some of the restrictions. And that's why they were so mad at him, because he was, he was changing things. He was changing the pattern of their, of their observance of the day. But his corrections of the scribes and Pharisees actually served to return his people to an accurate view of the day, just like he does with the other commandments. Right? Whereas they had taken the commands and twisted them, made them something that they could achieve or observe, and added a, a, a host of other commandments on top of them, Jesus brings them back to the central purpose of this command. He grew up honoring the Sabbath, and that carried into his ministry. We see that in, in Luke uh, chapter 4, verse 16, that he had the pattern of entering the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So he spoke against the Pharisees' abuse of the Sabbath commandment, as he did with many of the other commandments. So before we read this passage from Matthew chapter 12, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the instruction here that's given to us graciously to receive the blessings that you want to pour out upon your saints on this day. May we look forward to the Lord's day. May we look forward to gathering together and even spending the rest of this day when we're not gathered together, when we're not in immediate fellowship. Lord, meditating upon you, spending time in prayer, opening your word with our family, reflecting upon you and, and, and these covenant blessings. Lord, we, we want this day to be unique. We want it to be set apart because you have set it apart. You've made it holy. And you've done so from creation onward. And Lord, it points forward to our, our final redemption as well. The redemption that we will enjoy where we finally enter into rest unhindered by sin. Able to enjoy the fullness of that rest that we taste now. Lord, we look forward to that and we long for a taste of that even now as we hear from you. Increase our rest. Increase our dependence upon you our trust in you, or to, to, to enjoy and to observe this Sabbath rest is an act of faith. And so we need your spirit to grant us an enabling. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear this truth. Soften our hearts that we might delight in obedience to your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Read with me, Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, 
but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how to destroy him. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, we find here Jesus' instruction as the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He had just given in the previous section, verses um, 28 through 30, this instruction about rest. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I think most of you know, right, what the yoke was for. It went on the oxen as they worked. And, and it, it, can, it, it held them up. It, it moved them forward in unison so that they might plow the fields together. And so this yoke was, was, would have been a heavy object upon the shoulders of these oxen. But what Jesus is saying is that it, his yoke is easy. Well, we read as well back in Jeremiah the idea that the people of Israel had stiffened their neck against the command of God. They, they had stiff necks. Well, what that means, it's also a reflection of the same thing. It's the oxen saying, I'm not going to work. I'm not going to do this anymore. They stiffen their necks and, 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 not, and, and, and they, they don't work with, you know, uh, with the, the yoke. They don't work with, the, with their partner in, in plowing the field anymore. They, and so what, what he is saying is this yoke that Jesus offers us is a, is a light burden. It's something that we can manage because he has enabled us. And that doesn't mean we won't stumble, even with that yoke upon us, but we're united not just to anyone else, but the person who, you, who we are yoked with is Christ. And so as we stumble, he continues to uphold us. He continues to pick us back up and to dust us off and to strengthen our legs for the work ahead. And so it's this beautiful picture, this metaphor here of his yoke being easy and his burden light. It should be a delight to get under that yoke. To place that upon us is not a heavy burden. It's a gracious thing. And so in particular, this passage focuses upon two heirs that the Pharisees had in their observance of the Sabbath. The Pharisees taught that it was wrong to pluck and eat grain as the disciples had done. 
And they also understood it was unlawful to heal on the Sabbath. So Jesus, in this very passage, enters into the synagogue and heals a man right in front of them on the Sabbath. As he oftentimes did in many, if not most, of the healing stories in the Gospels occur on the Sabbath. I think Jesus was trying to say something. The Pharisees had a false notion that the Sabbath rest was defined as inactivity. Maybe it's a natural kind of response to the idea of resting that day where we should just not move. And so they invented these additional rules for Sabbath keeping, such as how much weight could be lifted. You were permitted to lift a certain amount of weight on the Sabbath, but nothing more. Um, They also had limits on how far you could walk on the Sabbath day. So the modern equivalent would be something like outlawing alcohol altogether to ensure that one doesn't accidentally get drunk. And we know God's law is very clear not to get drunk, but we would extend that out and say, well, let's just not touch alcohol at all. Let's have nothing to do with it. Let's make that a requirement, in fact, so that no one accidentally stumbles into drunkenness. But that's not, ex- not at all what God has in mind. In fact, throughout Scripture, alcohol is, is given as a blessing. So you've got to be able to understand the blessings that God has given and also to set, to, to set the safeguards that God has placed. Right, and, and to obey those, but not to create some kind of additional tradition by which you, you live your life by. So the modern, or, or, so Jesus rebukes this practice of the Pharisees because of their man-made laws. Right, their man-made laws had become more important than God's actual law. That's exactly what he says in Mark chapter 7, verse 8. So the Talmud was a collection of ancient Jewish commentary, and it oftentimes included all of these additional laws in the same passages where you, you would read in the Old Testament, various laws and commands, they would add to them. And so there's actually 24 chapters in the Talmud on Sabbath observance. They, they give 39 different occupations that are outlawed on the Sabbath. And so oftentimes what you could do is just find another one that was outside of that 39 in order to observe it. And they, they weren't taking the principles that were given. They were, they were trying to make it very specific and precise, which means you could break the commandment very easily by just going outside of their, their boundary. And you could also create out of the day nothing but more and more restrictions and, and, and burdens that are placed upon the people. Obviously, that's the opposite of what Jesus was trying to do. The very purpose in talking about this, or where Matthew places this, is right after he said, come to me and, f- and you'll find rest. And so what they were saying about the Sabbath was not consistent with the Old Testament commandment. The law of God forbid work on the Sabbath, even during planting and harvest season. So they took that and said, look, you can't pluck grain. The law allowed the poor, however, to, to glean from the edges of the field, even to pick up what, if, if, uh, if your harvesters were, as they were harvesting the grain and they, they dropped something, it didn't, didn't make it into the basket or the bag or however they collected. If it dropped on the ground, you're supposed to leave that as well. So the poor could actually go through the fields and find droppings and pick those up. That was left for them 
to do, to enjoy. And if you're walking along the edge or the corner of the field, there should also be, those should be left for them. So it wasn't as if Jesus and his disciples were jumping over a fence and, and grabbing a piece of fruit and eating it, at, you know, and stealing from their neighbor. No, this was perfectly permissible for them to go along the side of a field and, and pluck some grain, thresh it in their hands. But see, that's exactly what the Pharisees were looking at. They were saying, you're plucking grain. Well, at what point does that become work? Because you just plucked that grain. We've already told the, the farmer they can't be doing that on that day. And now you're not only doing that, you're threshing it in order to eat it, to prepare it. You're preparing a meal for yourself. And yeah, it sounds a little silly, but that was the logic they had. Right? The, the, they just kind of took the, the basic instruction and expanded it uh, to, to forbidding any kind of activity that related to preparing a meal. So as Jesus and his disciples were hungry, it was lawful for them to grab some of the heads of grain and eat it. Um, but the way the Talmud instruction had been given to the people, they were, uh, he was actually going against some of these commentaries. And for them, it was something that, that they, they saw as going against God's law. So Jesus here is, is making it clear. He had every right to tear down a fence that the Jews had set up in addition to God's law. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. And so in Matthew 12, 1 through 14, we see Jesus really advocates for three kinds of activity on the Sabbath in this passage. He, there's, first of all, works of piety. If pure rest were the goal, if pure just inactivity were the goal, then the priests would be the worst Sabbath breakers of all. As I mentioned earlier, that it, it is the most tiring day for them. It was the busiest day of the week. You see this in verse 5. Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Meaning they are working that day. They're, they're doing what the law on its, on its face forbids. But he's saying... That's not what the law was intended to forbid. It's intended to promote worship. And so, in fact, this is exactly what the priests are called to do. You might say they're profaning the day because they're working, they're, they're, they're tired from that work, but this proves the fact that it was not the intent of the law to simply be inactive. It was to promote a rest in God for all people, including the priests who were, who were overseeing that work. And so now that Christ is present, something greater is here. Verse 6, it says that uh, something greater than the temple is here. And so he argues from the lesser to the greater, the lesser of the temple to the greater of Christ's presence. And as the Lord of the Sabbath, he desires mercy rather than sacrifice. Had they understood this, they would not have been so quick to condemn Jesus and his disciples for satisfying this hunger because that opens the door for them to continue to give of themselves in sacrificial service to their neighbors on that day, right? The Sabbath, the, the, the Pharisees had this heartless, ritualistic observance of the Sabbath that actually obscured the work of piety that they were expected to perform on that day. 
as the spiritual leaders in their community. All they did was point at everyone who was doing something wrong instead of actually enjoying and modeling for them how to observe today. The priests were required, in fact, to circumcise a boy if he was born on a day or if the eighth day fell on the Sabbath. They, that was part of their duty was to perform that. They didn't get to wait until the ninth day in order not to work. No, they had to go and perform that ritual task. So they would acknowledge that their duty to perform that work was permitted, but they wanted to regard the healing ministry of Jesus as a violation of the Sabbath. So only certain aspects of piety were permitted. Now, the, the day is set apart for uh, works of piety. Secondly, works of necessity. We see that in this passage because they were hungry. And uh, to neglect, to satisfy their hunger would have had a negative impact upon their ability to perform the other tasks that God had, had assigned to them. So if David could violate a ceremonial law, eating the bread in the, in the temple, that had been set apart just for the priest to eat, if David could violate that ceremonial law in order to graciously provide food to his hungry men, then surely Jesus could violate the man-made law of the Pharisees in order to preserve the lives of his disciples. That's the argument here, again, from the lesser to the greater. And this seems to clarify that certain occupations cannot take the day off. Right, the military can't take a day off. I mean, in terms of the, the entire organization. Certain individuals may, but, they, but the military can't just have a day, a day of rest. And you certainly wouldn't want your enemies to know that. Um, neither can law enforcement officers or firefighters. And these, these are, are uh, jobs that must be performed. They're works of necessity. Uh, but this list oftentimes gets expanded to those who would say, well, it do doesn't really matter what your job is. It's a work of necessity because I have to earn a paycheck. And that's where you begin to turn these exceptions to the rule into just a permissiveness, right? a presumptuousness upon the law of God and to suggest that we can do any kind of work and call it a work of necessity. So I don't, I don't want to get into specific situations. They say, well, that job, your job is more, more important than the other. But I think it calls for some time to reflect and consider. Right, whether your job is, is something that must be done on the Lord's day. Or is it a day that you can take off? Is it a day that you can, can really devote the other six days to that work? Is it really a work of necessity in that sense? Now, I think as we get to this last section, we have other examples here to consider of works of mercy. So you have works of piety. It's a day of worship. And that worship requires some leadership, whether you're the head of your household or um, uh, you know, uh, the, involved in the leadership of a church. You'll be doing some work of piety on that day. 
all of us in that sense are, are called to that. You also have works of necessity, and then you have works of mercy. Jesus oftentimes healed on the Sabbath, as I've already mentioned. The Pharisees reveal that they care more for their animals than the people. If a, if a sheep falls into a ditch, they're going to take that, they're going to rescue the sheep, but they're not willing to rescue someone who is suffering. Uh, a, a fellow image bearer of God, they're not going to rescue them on the Sabbath day. No, Jesus says it's lawful to do good. So Joseph Piper says, failure to do good is to do harm. And the failure to save a life when it is within one's power is to destroy. This is the principle that you get from the Westminster Larger Catechism 99. Right? The opposite of what is commanded is forbidden, and the opposite of what is forbidden is commanded. You can look at each command that way. And so that means that you should be willing to show mercy on the Lord's Day. You should refrain from doing anything that, that places an undue hardship upon others as well. Show mercy in your own actions and don't place undue hardships upon others. Uh, in another instance, the ruler of the synagogue complained that the person who had come for healing could be healed on any of the other days of the week in Luke 13, verses 10 through 17. So, so instead of healing them, they would send them home and say, come back tomorrow. It's, you, you're going to have to suffer a little longer on this day. I can't do this work. For instance, hospitals should be open to care for the sick on the Lord's Day, just as every other day. But doctors are perfectly within their right to limit the performance of elective surgeries to weekdays. Right? There, there's, there's a balance here in this work of mercy, not to add undue hardship or expectations upon others. We could easily think of examples where a plumber may be needed to deal with an emergency, but other cases where they could wait to come out the following day. And, and again, I don't want to get into the weeds here by taking every scenario possible. But you can think about ways in which these three categories might allow for some nuance, for some work to be done. Works of piety, works of necessity, works of mercy. And so it'd be easy to fall into error on either extreme. On the one hand, we could get out of um, opportunities to help a neighbor by saying, oh, this is a day of rest, I'm sorry. Yeah, I know you want to move your bricks from one side of the yard to the other, but I can't today. I, I, it's just my religion, sorry. That could be one extreme. On the other hand, we could abuse the principle, suggesting that every household chore represents this sheep that's fallen into the ditch. <laughs> Everything's piling up. We've got to do it all today. And let's get our neighbors involved. Let's invite others to do the work with us. I think you have to be careful about putting those burdens upon others and also becoming legalistic about your own um, observance of rest. Right? We might benefit by asking, does this activity promote the purposes of the day? That's, that's the better question to be asking. Don't ask, um, does this violate the day? I mean, certainly you can, but that's, that's not the main question. The main question is, does this activity promote the purposes of the day? Think about what you're doing that is promoting 
a day of rest and worship? If you're focused on answering that question, then the latter question kind of just goes away. <clears throat> so Jesus provides the model for us to follow. He had no qualms about doing work on the Sabbath that honored the purpose of the day. He performed them, in fact, perfectly. And in the parallel passage in Mark chapter 2, verses 27 and 28, we read, And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The idea of him talking about made is, again, a reference to God's creation ordinance. So it's indicating its universal application to all men and women. Right? It's, it's to everyone. It's not to Jews only. It's universal. The fact that it was for man means that it was not only for Jews. It's a blessing that everyone should rest from their labors. That's why it was something that they had to uh, restrict even foreigners from practicing work on that day if they entered into uh, uh, where the Israelites lived. Okay, so we enjoy the rest, or sorry, um, it, it is for man, means that it was not for Jews only. It's a blessing for everyone to rest from their labors. And as Lord of the Sabbath, he did not come to abolish the Sabbath law, but to fulfill it. So we enjoy the rest that God provides, and we celebrate his work in creation and redemption. So Walter Chantry said, The sense given by those who claim that Jesus removed the Sabbath institution is as follows. Since from the very time of creation, God made the Sabbath to be a blessing for all mankind— Therefore, the Son of Man will, come, will become Lord of this blessing in order to demolish it. That makes literally no sense, right? Jesus did not come in order to abolish the blessing that God had given to all mankind to receive. He came to fulfill it and to enable us, in fact, to honor it. It's the very opposite of, of wanting to ignore the, the commandment altogether. And so it's needless to say that this turns the concept of fulfillment on its head if Jesus came to abolish it. If Jesus indeed is the Lord of the Sabbath, then we must submit to his lordship over this area in our lives. Just like any other area. It means that the day belongs to him. So we submit under that yoke as an easy, a light, and a blessed burden to take on. So even after all of the escalated encounters with the Pharisees, who went beyond merely questioning him to actually attempting to trap him, think about that. I mean, as, as they, they stopped him in the fields, as they confronted him about picking and plucking grain and, and eating it, he's on his way into the synagogue, and they've already got a man with a withered hand waiting for him. They're, they're ready to trap him. Are you going to heal this man? They wanted to catch him in disobedience for the Sabbath. They, and, that were, and that really escalates until they finally put him to death. But even with all of that, Jesus continued to honor the day. Jesus continued to observe the Sabbath commandment. 
As much as they wanted to prove that he was unrighteous on the Sabbath, his actions remained perfectly aligned with the law of God. And so he could confidently correct their overreach. And so it's important that we understand Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath. And and secondly, we need to understand Jesus as the one who fulfills the Sabbath. Jesus' view of the moral law is made clear. Go back to just uh, a few chapters, Matthew chapter 5. We'll look at verses 17 through 22. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 22, we read this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, Not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what does Jesus mean that he came to fulfill the law? In context, it's the opposite of destroy. But typically, when we consider something fulfilled, we think of satisfaction or or of being complete. And so what is predicted by the prophets is fulfilled in history. In what sense has Jesus fulfilled the law? In what sense has he completed the law? Well, one, he came to obey the moral law perfectly thus securing a saving righteousness for his people. That's a righteousness that must be imputed to us. It's a righteousness that you and I can never achieve apart from Christ. We, we have to start there. We have to recognize that Christ must accomplish this work. He must be the only one we look to as the one who fulfilled perfectly the moral law. And he secures in that a saving righteousness for his people, that without which we cannot enter glory. We need that righteousness to be imputed to us. Secondly, he came to suffer the the curse of the moral law in the place of his people, thus securing the forgiveness of our sins. The fact that we have broken and we continue to break God's moral law. The forgiveness that is is found... um, is, is only found in, in Christ, right? We, we must be forgiven, not be, by, by trusting in Christ. We, we're forgiven by turning to him, by confessing our sin freely. So he came to suffer the curse of the moral law in place of his people. He came to realize, thirdly, the prophetic types of the ceremonial law. All of the ceremony of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament is fulfilled and realized in the type of Christ. In fact, in that sense, he, be, he becomes the final. He becomes the reality of the shadows of the Old Testament in the ceremonial law. You could say the same thing. He came to establish the kingdom to which the civil law always pointed forward. But he also came to call his new covenant people to walk by the properly interpreted moral law of God on the narrow way that leads to life. 
He came to call his new covenant people to walk by the properly interpreted moral law of God on the narrow way that leads to life. So what follows is, in, in, even in the Sermon on the Mount here, after this passage, is an application and, and a correction of the abuses of the moral law. It all follows his, his recognition that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He didn't come to abolish the Sabbath law either. He came to repeal the Pharisaical interpretation of the Sabbath law. One commentator says, Faith, which rests alone on Christ for salvation, nevertheless evidences itself. Not by judging the commandments to see which are relevant and which are not, but by letting the commandments judge us and willingly submitting to them as the rule of our life and practice. So again, by our own efforts at law-keeping, we can never be freed, we can never receive pardon or justification. We do not keep the law in order to be saved, but because we already are saved. No longer under the guardian of the law, we now serve as sons desiring to fulfill the law of Christ, according to Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. So the New Testament never abandons the moral law, although the administration of the Sabbath under Jesus is different than in Moses. There's no civil judgment for Sabbath breaking. Jews never had the, the fullness of revelation, nor the fullness of the spirit that Christians have received. And so there's some differences to be recognized but because he has fulfilled it, we now walk in obedience. So in conclusion, I'd say this. The Lord of the Sabbath corrects any abuse of the day while he also calls us to enter into his rest. He corrects the abuses, and that means including our own abuses of that day. And then he calls us to enter into his rest and to enjoy that rest. So do you have a pattern of resting from your weekly labors? to enjoy true rest on Sundays. We must enter into that rest by faith. The, the Christian Sabbath is a day that's been set apart every week to remind us of our dependence upon the grace of God. And so our celebration of the Christian Sabbath also testifies to the world that we trust in God for our provision. Our activities throughout the day ought to point to the Lord whose perfect obedience secured our eternal rest. And so he is worthy to receive our faith-filled reading of his word. Our undivided attention in prayer, our wholehearted devotion in song, our joyful engagement in fellowship, and our sacrificial service of others in his name. All of those activities promote the work of Sabbath rest. And so let us ask the Lord to continue to enable us to fill our day with such activity. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you have set apart a day for us to rest and worship you. And we ask for your forgiveness for the ways in which we have gone astray, the ways in which we have made it just like any other day. We've made what you have set apart as holy, we've made it into a common thing. It'd be like turning this church into a, a business. 
an exchange of, of goods rather than of worship. Lord, forgive us. Help us to repent. Cause us to be restored into a right understanding of this day. And enable us to walk by faith. To continue to trust in you. And that can be exhibited in the way that we observe the Sabbath. The way that we observe the Lord's day. Lord, as we respond in song, we ask that you would lead us by your example as we've studied and as we continue to meditate and reflect. Lord, we come before you as as sheep before a shepherd. And so lead us and enable us to worship you rightly. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.